theyeshiva.net. Echel Menachem presents A Tale of Two Souls, an ongoing lecture series on the Tanya by Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak Jacobson. This is tape number 27 in the series, entitled, Can Forbidden Substances Become Holy? Recorded live at Hechel Menachem, Brooklyn, New York. Good morning. Tanya Perekhes, the eighth chapter of Tanya which is on page 24, or Dafyid Beis Amad Beis. In the previous chapter, Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi, the Alter Rebbe, explained the difference between forbidden things and permitted things. Forbidden objects, he explained, receive their vitality, their energy, their sustenance from a realm defined as Shalish Klippes Atmeis, the three unclean shells, which totally conceal and obscure their inner divine identity and spark. However, permitted things receive their vitality, their energy from a realm defined as klipasnaiga, a translucent shell, which klipasnaiga is an intermediate between Kedusha, between the realm of holiness, and the realm of Shalish Lipas is the three unclean shells, because Klipas Neige is a mixture, as he puts it, of Taiv and Ra, of positivity and negativity. On one hand, Klipas Neige is a shell which conceals, which also obscures the inner divine essence of the object of the reality, and its ultimate raison d'etre, its true purposeness. On the other hand, we say it's klipas neige, it's a translucent shell, because it's not a shell that totally conceals and obscures its divine essence and purpose. So therefore, it is a klipas neige, a shell which is translucent, it allows for the divine inner identity to be revealed within it. Hence, the Alter Rebbe explained, permitted things, one, can either elevate or can lower. If the human being utilizes the permitted object for the sake of heaven, say, for example, a man consumes the flesh of an animal, And then he uses that energy to do something positive, transcendental, godly. Say he earns money, and despite his primal instinct to use all the money for himself, he gives some of it to charity. So what happens then is that the true purpose of the animal has been realized, and it has been elevated to the realm of holiness. It has transcended the parameters of its own being, and has become an instrument in man's service of the divine reality. Hence, this thing which receives its energy from Klippasnaiga, the Klippasnaiga reality, was elevated from the realm of Klippa to the realm of Gdusha. But if a person eats the same meat, not for the sake of heaven, not with the purposeness of utilizing the energy for something constructive, godly, and holy, but rather for the sake of pleasure, and he's interested in pleasure merely for the sake of pleasure. So then he has taken this food, this substance, which was receiving its energy from Klippas Naiga, and has lowered it to the realm of the Shalish Klippas Atmeis of the three Unclippas. Certainly, if one violates a mitzvah with this food, if one performs a transgression on Aveda with this food, certainly then he lowers it to the realm of Shalosh Lippasat Megas. Because not only did he not utilize it in accordance with its inner divine purpose, with its inner divine identity, in accordance with the divine will, on the contrary, 
he has used it to perform an act which is antithetical to Hashem's will. So the food and the energy of the food has become an medium and an instrument in the realization of an act which is contrary to its purpose and its true identity. So then, for sure you lower the substance of the food to the realm of the Shalish Lippas Atmeis. But even if a person does not perform an Aveira, a transgression with this food, even if he just uses the food as an instrument to fulfill his bodily lusts and appetites, to fulfill his gluttonous instincts, then also he lowers the substance from Klippas Nege to Shalos Klippas Atmeis. In continuation to this concept, the Alter Rebbe begins the 8th chapter of Tanya. In Perik Zion, the Alter Rebbe explained that if someone is a gluttonous person who's eating the chunk of beef or quaffing the wine for gluttonous purposes, so he has taken the meat and the wine, which has received its vitality and energy from a realm called Klippas Nege, the translucent shell, and has lowered it to the realm of Shalosh Klippas Atmeis, now it's connected to that realm. If a person uses this food to do an Isr, in other words, not only to eat like a glutton, but he actually uses this food to do an Isr. For example, he eats the food on Yom Kippur. What's so funny? <laughs> but anyway, he eats the food on Yom Kippur. So then the food has become an instrument not only to satisfy his gluttonous instincts or passion, but much more than that. The food has now been used to actually violate the divine will. So certainly, he lowers its vitality and energy from the realm of Klippas Nagadashalus If someone, you're asking, eats something which is forbidden, and then he uses that energy to do a mitzvah. So what fueled the energy, what fueled that mitzvah? It was something which was forbidden. Is that elevated to the realm of holiness or not? If, yeah, fine. But if not, does that mean that there's something wrong with the mitzvah because it has been performed through a reality of shalom slippers of nights? So the answer to this question is actually how Perikhas begins. Let's look inside. There is an additional aspect in the matter of forbidden foods. For which reason they are called Isur, which Isur in Hebrew means bound and attached. For even if one ate a forbidden food unwittingly, and we're talking about a case where it wasn't necessarily his fault that he has eaten it unwittingly. Because halachically, for whatever reason, he was not obligated to find out and to do research if it was kosher or non-kosher. Halachically, he could have. No problem. Be of the opinion, possess the opinion that it's absolutely kosher. But nevertheless, for whatever reason, it turns out that it wasn't kosher. And furthermore, it's not only that he ate it unwittingly. He ate it l'shem shamayim. He ate it for the sake of heaven. In order to serve Hashem with the energy derived from this consumption. Furthermore, not only did he not know it was forbidden, not only did he eat it for the sake of Hashem, for the sake of serving the divine reality, much more than that. The Gampal Vasaki. He actually carried out his intention. He studied Torah and he prayed with the energy derived from that very food. The vitality contained in it does not ascend or become clothed 
in the words of Torah and prayer that he prays and he studies with the energy of that food, as in the case with permitted food, where the energy does ascend and does become enclosed in the letters of davening or learning. And the reason for this is, Mipnei Yisura, Bidei HaSitra Achira, because it, the energy of this food, is held captive in the power of the sitra akhira, of the three unclean clippers, which do not permit the energy of the food to be elevated to sanctity. Yes, still the mitzvah is makuyim. The man did a mitzvah. And he did a mitzvah with which energy? With the energy of something forbidden. But because essentially this is forbidden, it's not something which is permitted. It belongs to the realm of Shalosh Lippas which has Hashem created. They are realities, they are energies that totally conceal and obscure their inner divine identity, their inner divine vitality. It cannot ascend to the realm of holiness. So therefore, even if someone has made it an instrument in doing something transcendental, that forbidden thing remains forbidden. It can't relieve those parameters. Even if the prohibition is by a reason of the... It's a rabbinic prohibition. So one might say, concerning Torah prohibitions, that is the case. But concerning rabbinic prohibitions, one might think that when someone consumes such a food which is prohibited only by the rabbana, only by the rabbis, it does not fall into this category. So the Rebbe says, no, even in Suri the Rabbanon, once the Rabbanon have prohibited it, they receive their vitality and they're connected to the realm of Shalosh Lubasat Meis. Our sages tell us, that the words of the scribes, of the sages, are even more stringent in a sense than the words of the Torah. So the Chachamim have the power to prohibit something in a manner that its essence should become a reality of objective negativity, an Isra prohibition which belongs to the domain of Shalosh Lippasat Metis. When someone does a mitzvah, you want to know if he elevates the physical thing with which he does the mitzvah to the realm of holiness. And the food that he's eating before it, which has become the fuel that allowed this mitzvah to happen, he elevates it to the realm of holiness. Yes. However, however, when he does the mitzvah, he will elevate it, if it came from Clippers night. However, the question is also at the time of the consumption, what is intentional? In order to immediately elevate it to the realm of Gdusha, there has to be a conscious intention to eat it for the sake of heaven. If man's intention is for bodily appetites, he doesn't elevate it, on the contrary. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. When he puts on the tefillin, he doesn't have to think that I'm now want to elevate those eggs that have fueled me, that have fueled the act of tefillin. He puts on tefillin and naturally it elevates. Now you're asking, that apparently there's something very difficult to understand over here. Because the energy is what fueled this mitzvah. So he's saying it's forbidden. Fine, it's forbidden. But actually speaking, this food has become a medium and an instrument through which man does a mitzvah. So in other words, this food has become part of a godly reality. It has been utilized for a godly purpose. So the words of davening or prayer have within them the energy of this food. So it's a fact that they are elevated to the realm of hope. Even the Easter, it's Isn't it a factual thing? If you have done the mitzvah. So indeed someone once asked this question to the rabbi many years ago. And the Rebbe responded in a letter as follows. The real chiddush over the real news in these chapters of Tanya, so to speak, is not that something which is forbidden cannot be elevated to the realm of hope. 
is that something that is permitted can be elevated to the can be elevated to the realm of holiness. Because there is a major difference when you say that something becomes an instrument for the realization of a holy act, or that that thing itself becomes part of the realm of holiness. For example, you talk about a table. This very table can be used for a variety of purposes. You can use the table to play bingo on it. You could use the, the table to play a game of Tetris on it. You could use the table to learn a blab gemara on it, or to, or to learn a periktan. Has the table changed? You say that the table over here became an instrument for this, and over here it becomes an instrument for this. But the table is the same table. It was used for different purposes. It has become a medium for different purposes. But the table is different. Over here we're not saying that when you eat something permitted and you use it for a mitzvah, it has become an instrument for doing a mitzvah. Much more than that. We say that because it has become an instrument of doing the mitzvah, it becomes part of the realm of holiness. And this is a big kiddush. And the Rebbe gives an example. Take for example a hand. One man's fingers will write intellectual concepts. Another man's fingers will write stupid concepts. Nonsense. So what happened to the fingers? You're going to say that when your fingers transcribe something which is deep, profound, intellectual, the fingers become part of the intellectual realm of existence. And conversely, in the other case, the fingers become part of the nonsense reality of existence. Fingers are fingers. They have been used for two different realities. Over here, the fingers were used as an instrument for knowledge, for wisdom. Over here, they have been used as an instrument for, for stupidity, for nonsense. When you talk about, for example, the brain, by actually contemplating thoughts and ideas for many years, it affects the brain. The brain is affected by man's energy of intellect. But the fingers are no difference. It's, it's indifferent to it. And the same thing we would think is also true over here. The world is the world. The energy of food is energy of food. So yes, you have used this food to do a mitzvah. So the food has become an instrument in doing a mitzvah. Does that mean that it leaves, it transcends the parameters of its existence and it becomes part of the godly existence? That is a major chiddush. So that nevertheless, Dr. Rebbe explains is that in permitted things, Hashem imbued the nature of reality thus. That permitted things are a vessel, are receptive, to be elevated by Kedusha to the realm of Kedusha. That aspect does not exist in things of Shalosh Kribbis of Christ. So yes, they become an instrument through which the mitzvah was fulfilled. There's no question about it. They are fueled. This act, this transcendental act, fine. But they nevertheless do not leave the parameters of their existence and now assume a new identity. An identity of revealed godliness, spirituality and holiness. And now the Alter Rebbe continues, It's clear. We have already discussed in Peter Zion, it's a good question. If someone's life is in danger, so you're allowed to feed them something which is forbidden, that's going to save their life. In that case, pikuach nefesh, saving a person's life, overrides the rule of eating only kosher and not eating non-kosher, and it becomes mutter. So then certainly, this it does not fall in into this category. Since it is permitted for this Jew at this instance, in these, on these unfortunate circumstances, to consume, he is given the power to realize its inner divine identity, its true purposeness, and to elevate it to the realm of holiness. Therefore, the evil impulse and the force that lusts after forbidden things who shade me shade is also one of the non-Jewish demons. Shuhu Yetzir Hara Shal Umaysailam, which is the Yetzahara the Shal Umay's Ayyvdi Gilulam. Really, uh, this was uh, written so because of the censorship in Zarist Russia. But in the back it's corrected to Umay Sa'ilam. 
the Yitzhahara of the nations of the world, whose souls are derived from the three unclean clippers. On the other hand, the evil impulse and the craving force after permissible things, in order to satisfy one's craving, who shade me, shade in you, This is one of the Jewish demons. For it can be reverted to holiness as was explained above. The Alter Rebbe begins. Therefore, in light of what has been explained above, we understand since the vitality, the energy of a forbidden food varies, is different than the vitality. Of a permitted food, objectively, the vitalities of forbidden things and permitted things vary drastically, respectively. Therefore, the respective impulses and forces which gravitate, which gravitate toward these two types of realities are also drastically different. The lust and the craving force after forbidden things, which forbidden things derive their energy from whence? From Shalish Flippus Atmeus. This lust and craving force is defined as a non-Jewish demon. A non-Jewish demon, Shade Mishadun Achoyan, is the Zohar's, Zohar's expression. For the Yetzir Hara of the non-Jew, which is not from the righteous Gentiles that observe the seven Noahide laws, their Yetzirah, as has been explained in chapter 1 of Tanya, and in chapter 6 is derived from Shalish Lippus Atmeis. So therefore, this type of non-Jewish demon lusts and gravitates towards the realities of Shalish Lippus Atmeis. However, the Jewish demon, which is the expression used in Zaya, for the Jewish Yetzirah, for the Jewish animal, since this Yetzirah, comes from the realm of Klippas Naiga, as has been explained in chapter 1 and in chapter 7. Therefore, naturally, this craving force, this lust, gravitates to what type of realities? To permitted realities, because they also receive their vitality from Klippas Naiga. I, the animalistic soul of the Jew, the Sahara, gravitates to these permitted realities in order to satisfy her lust and her bodily appetite. And when one does so, it becomes lowered from the realm of Klippas Nega to the realm of Shalosh Klippas Atmeis. But that's only temporarily. It's not like Shalosh Klippas Atmeis itself, as Dr. Rebbe explains over here, because the vitality of a permitted thing, even when it was consumed, to satisfy one's appetite, can revert to holiness, as was explained before in chapter 7. So hence... The, the force and craving towards a permitted thing, even to satisfy one's appetites, originates in the shade, mishade, yehudayin, in the Jewish type of animal, which is an animal which comes from Klippas night. You have, for example, in most societies, there are lusts that are defined as normal lusts, normal cravings, and types that are defined as abnormal. It's true, Taka, that in our generation, especially in the last years, these boundaries have been seriously blurred, and today almost everything is normal. And, and furthermore, the more abnormal, sometimes the more admired it is. But nevertheless, there's a concept, at least, that there are certain types of cravings and loss that are outside of the realm of normalcy. They're abnormal. They're alien from the norms that define a human being. They cannot be confined to the realm, to the norms of a human, of a society, of a human society. In that sense, we are also to understand what he's saying here. The Jewish demon, the Jewish animal are the lusts, are the cravings, the things that are permitted, the things that can ultimately be corrected, that can ultimately be elevated and refined. 
This is part of the struggle of the Jew, of the character of the Jew, of the battle of the Jew. This is the Jewish animal. The non-Jewish demon, the shade and the chrayin, are the lusts and the cravings, the things that do not have any correction, that do not have any remedy. A Jew that experiences this, the Al-Tarebbe is saying, must remember that this is an experience which is abnormal for the Jew. Essentially, this is totally alien and foreign to the character of the Jew. Ah, you'll ask a question. We see that it exists. We see that the Jew, despite that his Yitzhahara comes from Klippas Naiga, lusts and craves, at times at least, the things that come from Shalosh Klippas Atmayas, the forbidden things. So the answer for this is, the answer given is, explanation is, that when the Jew indulges himself in permitted things, if he does that long enough, certain quantity and quality, ultimately that coerces his shade and shade and his Jewish animal, that it assumes some of the characteristics of the non-Jewish demon. Why? Because as mentioned, when you eat permitted things to satisfy your bodily lust, the food enters the realm of that food becomes part of the physiological makeup of the person, part of his flesh and his blood, it becomes part of his character. So his animalistic demon becomes tainted by a foreign realm and an alien realm, and hence he can desire even something which is antithetical, essentially, to the Jewish character. When one eats even permitted food for the sake of pure bodily appetite, so the energy that he has expended... To eat that food is also lowered in the realm of Shalat And the fact that there now exists a realm of Shalat within him affects a certain, di- certainly certain dimensions of a soul that become connected to the realm of Shalat In other words, they descend from their previous status and they assume a status which essentially is much, is inferior to their status. No, the Nafsha Bahamas. I mean, I don't, I don't think it has to do with prior from. Uh, there's no from a Yidin that eats a kugel or a chalant uh, in a gluttonous manner. I don't know. I don't know at this point. I don't know. Maybe. The Baal Shem Tev was one Shabbos. And the Baal Shem Tev was sitting with his students. And the Baal Shem Tev said that he wants to show them something. And he asked them to close their eyes and that everyone should place his hands on the shoulders of his friend, of his colleague sitting nearby him, and the two students sitting at the Balshamtiv's two sides placed their hands, uh, the Balshamtiv placed his hands on them, so they were all connected like one, uh, one circle. And the Balshamtiv again asked them to close their eyes, and suddenly they saw an ox, a shoy, wearing a strimal, and eating it was Friday night. When they opened their eyes, the Balshemtiv said that this is a Jew who happens to be a rabbi. And he's now eating the food of Shabbos. But he's so involved in the food that he lost his human identity and he's become an ox. He assumed the identity of the animal which he is involved in. What happened with the Shtraimel? The Shtraimel was a Shabbos garment. Since it was a Shabbos garment, that remained in the form of a Shtraimel. For everything else became, actually assumed the form of an ox. Although it was Shabbos. Yeah, that's what Alter, you're asking, uh, so when the Jew now, when a Jew craves for something forbidden, if it's foreign for him or not, Alter Rebbe is saying essentially it's foreign for the Jew. The Jewish animal craves to things that are come from Klippas Naik. The food which is permitted, the things that are permitted, even to satisfy his bodily loss, but he's craving the things that come from Klippas Naik. Things that essentially from Shalos Klippas Atmeis, which are not connected to the realm of Kedusha whatsoever, very deeply repressed by the forces the Jew naturally doesn't crave. I, the Jew, does crave that something foreign and alien that has, so to speak, attached itself to the animal of the Jew, but essentially it's not part of his psychological and spiritual anatomy. How does one remove himself from it? By by not allowing himself to become indulgent, even in Taivas Hatter, even even things that are permitted for the sake of self-indulgence. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll talk.
Ach, mikol Although the vitality of permitted foods eaten out of bodily desire can revert to holiness through the person returning to a state of divine service, but nevertheless, before it has reverted, before it has reverted to holiness, it's and klipa. Before this food has been reverted to the realm of holiness, what is it? It's in the realm of Sitra Achra and Klippa. Vigam Achra. And even afterwards, even after the person repented and elevated the energy of the food to holiness, a trace of it, a stain of it, remains attached to the person's body. Why? Since each item of food and drink that one ingests immediately becomes blood and flesh of his flesh. And since this food, which immediately when you consume, becomes part of your blood and your flesh, and at the time of the consumption, the food was connected to which realm? The Shalish Plippasatmeyas. And this food, which is connected to Shalish Plippasatmeyas, becomes immediately part of your blood and your flesh. So in your body, there has become engraved something from Shalish Plippasatmeyas. I, afterward, the person re-elevates the vitality of the food to Kedusha. That only works for the future. From now on, this vitality becomes part of Gdushim. But previously, the vitality at a certain moment was connected to the realm of Shalosh and that has already in the past become his flesh and blood. That's why he says, take it. It becomes immediately before he brings it back to holiness. And this is true, not only in a case where the human being eats food in order to satisfy his bodily appetites and lust, a gluttonous person, but even if a person eats food plainly, not for the sake of heaven and not for the sake of self-indulgence. It's just in the first case, the food becomes connected to the realm of Shalosh In the latter case, it becomes connected to the realm of Klippas Nega, which the person has descended into Klippas Nega, which is lower than its natural objective state of Klippas Nega, because when it comes in contact with the human being who has the potential to elevate it, and the person abuses that potential... He lowers it in the realm of Klippas Nega from a higher form of Klippas Nega to a lower form of Klippas Nega. And his body is connected to that Klippa. That is why the body must undergo something known as Chibot which means the purgatory of the grave. Purgatory of the grave is mentioned in Rashi and Gemara. In Gemara it's not mentioned, but in Rashi and Masechta Sanhedrin. Rashi mentions Chibut HaKever. It's explained more at length in Zoyar, Chelek Beis, Dafkofnan Aleph, and in Reb Chaim Vital, Svarim, Sefer HaGagulam, and Sefer HaKavonis. It's an experience that the body goes through after the soul leaves the body. Among other things, this is also part of the rotting and the discomposition of the body after death. The purpose of this process of Chibat HaKever is In order to cleanse it and purify it of the uncleanliness which it had received from the enjoyment of mundane things and pleasures which are from the impurity of the Klippas Naga and of the Jewish demons, the Jewish Yetzirah which desires permitted matters and the body as a result of man's act has received and has ingested and digested part of this impurity. So the body has to be purified. And that's why it has to go through the experience of the purgatory of the grave. The body itself is not something which is impure. The body becomes impure because it has been impurified through the impurity of the clippers. The body, like every physical thing, its true identity, its true purposes, to mirror and reflect the goodness, the perfection of Hashem. But when the person does not respect the body with the respect it deserves, 
when the person uses the body as an instrument for something which is foreign to what the true identity of the body is, he impurifies it and it has to be purified. Elim came. Unless someone, me, one, who had never derived enjoyment from this world all of his life. As was the case with Rabbeinu HaKadosh, such a type of person doesn't have to go through the experience of purgatory of the grave. The Gemara in Ksuvah's Dafkuvdalana tells the dramatic story of Rebbe, Rabbeinu Yehud, the Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi's passing. The Gemara says that at the time of his passing, Bashas Tirasai, Rebbe raised all of his ten fingers towards heaven and he said, Rebbeinu Shalaylam, master of the universe, it is revealed and known to you that all my life I have labored and toiled in the study of prayer with all of my ten fingers. And I have not enjoyed this world's benefits even with my small finger. So a person like Rabbeinu HaKadosh, a person like Rabbi Yehuda Anas, who has never enjoyed worldly benefits, his body has never been impurified, not with the tomb of Klippas Naiga, not with the tomb of Shalos Klippas Afmeis, not even with the tomb of Klippas Naiga. So this body is totally pure and holy. It has been used only in accordance with its inner divine entity and purpose. It has always mirrored and reflected the transcendence, the godliness of existence. Hence, it's not coming, it doesn't have to go through the experience of Chibat HaKev. The example that Dalton ever brings from Rabbeinu HaKadosh is not just an example of a human being who actually lived up to the above-mentioned standards. But it's more than that. Because Taisvis in Avedizarid Afiralov where Chazal tell us, interpret the words of Hashem to Rivka when she was pregnant and there was, uh, she had major pains in her womb. And Hashem told her, there are two nations in your womb. And Chazal tell us that at the meaning of it, it's spelled Geim, there are two rulers in your womb. That this refers to Antoninus and Rabbi. Antoninus was the Roman emperor approximately in the years 150 after the Common Era after the destruction of the second temple, from the descendants of Esau. Rabbi, Rabbeinu Yehudanos, he was the leader of the Jewish people at that time, from the descendants of Yaakov. So, Shnegeim bevitneich, there are two rulers in your womb, concerning, referring to Yaakov and to Rabbi and Antininus, who lived a regal and aristocratic life, the Gemara says, that from their table, they have never seized, not snoin and not chazeres, no radishes, not radishes, and not lettuce, not in the summer, not in the winter. At that time, radish, lettuce, and radishes, both in the summer and winter, was a unique delicacy. But Rabbi and Antininus lived a regal life that they enjoyed both of these things all year. It never went over their table. So Tesfa says, how do you say in Ksuvus? That Rabbi says, I have never enjoyed the world's benefits even a small finger, with my small finger, when this is from the only human beings in that generation. Who never had off the table horse and lettuce or radishes. So Teisva says that the radishes and the lettuces on the table was not for him, it was for Eichle Shulchanai. It was for people that ate by his table, he never enjoyed it. But the question still remains. That also was an enjoyment. Rebbe says, I never enjoyed world benefits. There's enjoyment through consumption. There's enjoyment by having certain things in your house, by having, by, 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 by having the ability to offer it to other people. It's also a type of enjoyment. So the answer is that that was not Rebbe's intention. Rebbe's intention was not that people should come in and should say, wow, look what type of menu this human being offers. Rebbe's intention with having all these delicacies and living a regal and aristocratic life was solely for the sake of heaven, was in order to bring in godliness to the world. It had a transcendental, a spiritual, and a holy purpose. Whether it was to help people, whether it was to bring people closer, etc., etc. So when Alter Rebbe brings the example of Rabbeinu HaKadosh, he's telling us that when you talk about someone who didn't derive enjoyment from this world, it doesn't mean necessarily that you have to every day eat a hard piece of bread and drink one cup of water. A human being 
can also eat things which are pleasurable and which a person derives pleasure from it. Because man's pleasure in life can also become an integral part of his divine service. It's a mitzvah to have pleasure in Shabbos and Yom Tiv through meat and wine. Or the example that Al-Turebbe gave in last period, when someone eats a delicious, pleasurable, fat chunk of beef, and that allows his mind to become more receptive to the understanding of Torah, that is a pleasurable experience. But the pleasure over here is not merely pleasure for the sake of pleasure. The pleasure itself becomes an instrument in the divine service. In that case, not only is the pleasure not negative, furthermore, the human being through that has elevated the food and the pleasure to the realm of godliness, to the realm of holiness. So such a human being certainly doesn't have to go through Chibat HaKeva. However, a person who has, not reached, who has not reached that level, who has not reached that state, then his body has been affected, has been tainted through the impurity of Shalish Klippas Atmeis, or just lower Klippas Nega, which comes as a consequence of eating food, not for the sake of heaven, and certainly to satisfy his bodily loss. And it becomes part of the flesh and the blood of the body. So then it has to go through Chibat Rabbi enjoyed that the people coming to his table should eat uh, radishes and lettuce. But the enjoyment over here is not considered an enjoyment from the world, from mundane reality. The enjoyment is a godly enjoyment. I'm saying him, he could have eaten it already. Taisvah said that it was for for the people sitting at the table. It's possible that of that hana is much easier to use for divine service than the hana of eating. Eating something for the sake of divine service is more difficult than giving giving away your food to someone else for the sake of divine service. No, no, the delicacies, the involvement in the delicacies. The shalah, the shalah, Rabbi Yeshaya Horowitz was the famous 17th century great Kabbalist, sage, and scholar, prolific writer, lived in Krakow. And his monumental work, Shnei Luchis Abris and Asara Mamaris and Shar Shmini, he discusses this whole concept of utilizing physical foods and substance solely for the sake of heaven. And he brings the story of Rebbe, and in a footnote in Agar, he brings the question of Taisvis, and the answer of Taisvis, and he says, but this is a Deichik Dika answer. In other words, this is a Deichik Dika answer means... Huh? A forced answer that it wasn't for him. So the Shalah Taka explained that Rabbi indeed ate himself. It's nine in the Chazar. Shalah doesn't lie. Let's say Rabbi ate it. And the reason he ate it was not merely pleasure for the sake of pleasure. In order to satisfy his bodily loss, it was in order, Shalah says, he should have a healthy body and a good body through which he should be able to serve Hashem better. So therefore, the eating the horse, the the the, the, the radish, the tznaina, the chazaras, is not considered enjoying this world's pleasures because the act is actually a holy and a spiritual act. That's what the Shalom is. Thank you. They tell the story. I want to share with you two stories. Concerning Taka, the author of the Tanya, Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liyadi, the Alter Rabbi. Once News arrived to his home that a very distinguished guest is arriving. The Pshleima of Kalin, the holy Pshleima of Kalin was a dear colleague of Alter Rebbe, a student of the Maggid of Mizrich, who was the second generation of, uh, who was the second leader of the Hasidic movement after the Bashamta. For the visit of the Pshleima of Kalin immediately involved a dispute. Between the Alter Rebbe's wife, Rebbe's Sterna, and his daughter, Fredke. What was the dispute? It has already been several years that Fredke took over the kitchen. She was the one who ran the kitchen. Now that such a distinguished guest was coming. An aristocratic regal meal had to be prepared. Her mother, Rebbe's Sterna, wanted to retake the kitchen. She wanted to have the merit to prepare the food for such a holy guest. Rebbe said, no, the kitchen doesn't belong to you anymore. It's not fear that when it comes just to prepare ordinary breakfasts and dinners, I get the privilege. When it comes to such a distinguished guest, I lose it. It's unfair. 
So they brought the court case, so to speak, to whom to Dalpa Dapa? Between his wife and his daughter. Dalpa listens and he says, Rabbi Sisterna has the right to prepare the meal. But she should not put in the salt. And since food which is saltless is tasteless, and Freitka will be the one who will be dashing in the salt, so she will be having an integral part in preparing the meal for Ibshleim. This was the compromise. Okay, they accepted the verdict. The rabbits and Sterna prepared the meal. And after decades and decades of cooking, naturally she put in salt. She didn't even think twice. Subconsciously, instinctively she put in the salt. Then came Freitka and put in her dosage of salt. And since that was the only thing she was doing, so she put, you know, she made sure <laughs> that the salt was there and it was conspicuous. Replayma came, and the dish has been served to both of them. Al-Tareb immediately began eating. Replayma took one bite, and he removed the dish. Al-Tareb gives a look, and he was certain that they forgot to put in the salt, so he took a little salt, and he dashed a third cent of salt into the dish. Replayma is not continuing to eat. But polite, he's not saying anything. So after a few minutes, the Rebbe turns to the Pshleim and he says, why aren't you eating? The Pshleim says, why don't you taste the food? <laughs> taste the food and you'll see why I'm not eating. It's impossible for a human being to consume. So the Rebbe, who's already half, uh, almost half finished, takes a, takes a spoon, takes a little bit, places it into his mouth. Thoughtfully, he contemplates the taste and he says, you know the Pshleim? You're right. And he says, from the day I arrived to our Rebbe, Rebbe Dov Berim is rich, I have lost the taste of food. One of the Hasidim of Rebbe Shnei Zalman's name was Rebbe Shmuel Munkas. Everybody once told you a story about Rebbe Shmuel. Rebbe Shmuel was an extraordinary Jew, extremely pious, big Hasid, had a very powerful sense of humor. There was once a Hasidic Shafabrengim, Hasidic gathering of Hasidim in the first generation of Alter Rebbe's time. The Hasidim was saying L'chaim, Avatka, and enjoying the Frabaisen, which is the little uh, cake or little delicacies that they used to uh, soften the effects of the L'chaim. And Abshmo Munkus was the host, he was, uh, he wasn't the host, wasn't his home, but he was running around, he was giving the l'chaim, he was giving the delicacies. In the middle of the Fabrengen, a beautiful, large chunk of roasted lung arrived from Reb Nassim the Sheikh's house, Reb Nassim the ritual slaughterer's home, to the Fabrengen. And it was given immediately to Reb Shmuel, who placed it under his arm, and he was not distributing it. One hour went by, another hour went by, a third hour went by. People thought it's another one of Rabshmul Munkus's stick. But people, he had his things, but people were getting hungry. And he was not, he was refusing. And when people would ask him for it, because the food was running out, always he would have another excuse. Finally, the younger Hasidim were intolerant. There was no more food on the table. And they decided to jump him and get it. So they came to the Shmuel, they wanted to grab it, and with one twist of his hand, he took the roasted lung, and Gavaldi threw it in, into the unclean part of the house. And immediately he began dancing a Kazatska. So the young Hasidim, who were deeply involved in the Fabrengen, and they were a bit on a high, immediately gathered, what do we do with the Shmuel? Such a chutzpah dekak. We have to give him something. You have to give him a few fraskin, as they said. Teach him a lesson. Good Rabbi Shmuel says no problem. He gets up under the table. They smack him up a few times. They give him a few spanks off of the table. And they continue the fabrengen. Rabbi Shmuel has to get some more food. He gets a little herring. A little juice. They were very, very disappointed relative to what they had before. In middle, a commotion happens. Rabbi the sheikh, comes running in and he says a terrible mistake happened. It seems that the butcher was out of town. So the butcher's wife was running the store and she gave Reb Nassim the Sheikhet to prepare a roasted lung, which was a non-kosher lung. I hope no one ate it. Well, now the older Hasidim made a gathering. Reb Shmuel is doing Rebbe miracles. Who gave a right 
to a chassid to do miracles. Where does he know these things from? Another spanking. So for the second time around, Shmuel was receiving a spank. And then he went up and he said, listen, I'm not a prophet, I'm not the son of a prophet, I'm not a rabbi, I'm not the son of a rabbi. I'll tell you. From the first time I went into the Alter Rebbe's chamber, I made a deep resolve that I will not allow my bodily lusts and appetites to dictate my behavior. Suddenly, when this roasted one came into the home, I felt a very powerful physical loss towards it. And I saw that all of you experienced the same. So I knew that something is wrong. I knew that something is wrong and therefore I was ready to throw it out. And it's interesting that 200 years ago, when Al-Tarebbe was arrested by the Tsarist Russian government, it was actually 200 years ago in 1798, the day after Sukkot. Serious, serious charges that he's rebelling against the government, which we have discussed in our first class concerning the life of Dalter Rebbe and his biography. So immediately Dalter Rebbe went away from his home and he hid. He went hiding in a bar. Because he knew that in a bar no one will come looking for Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi. And who did he go with? He went with Rabbi Monkus. He was in a bar for one hour, two hours, three hours, many hours. How long can you stay in a bar? So he turns to the Shmuel, who was very close, cousin to Rabbi Rebbe. And he says, what should I do? Shmuel says, go out of the bar, go home, expose your identity. Dr. Rebbe says, I expose my identity, you know what's going to happen to me. So very, very severe charges. I'll be taken away to Petersburg in prison. And what the verdict can be uh, very severe penalties. The opposite of life. The Shmuel says, listen to me then. If you should go and expose yourself. And don't worry about it. Because Whichever way you look at it, this is what should be done. If you're Takar Rebbe, so you have nothing to worry about. Their bullets will not be able to penetrate you. And if you're not a Rebbe, you deserve it. Who gave you the right to rob away from hundreds of thousands of Jews their pleasure in materialism? Have a good day and a wonderful week. Dr. Rebbe in his teachings, uh, Dr. Rebbe in his teachings explains time and again, and he, he educated a generation that was imbued with the consciousness, there's no I, there's no materialism for the sake of materialism. A person, every act of them has to be imbued with a godly intention. So he robbed away from thousands of Jews just enjoying a kugel for the sake of a kugel. <laughs> so you deserve to be in prison. <laughs> he went, he went, he went out. He went out. He was arrested. He was arrested. And he sat in prison for uh, close to seven weeks. Seven weeks. And he was liberated on Yutas Kislev. The 19th day of Kislev. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.